0: Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's a holiday weekend, so let's have a listen to my 2020 conversation with turquoise Dyson. Dyson is included in Climate Changing on Artists, Institutions, and the Social Environment at the Wexner Center for the Arts in Columbus, Ohio, through May 9th. The exhibition looks at how artists engage with social issues and how they may shape institutions at a time when both racism and a global pandemic have caused many institutions to reconsider their construction and practices. The exhibition was curated by Lucy I. Zimmerman. Climate Changing features nine artworks commissioned by the Wexner, including work Dyson discussed on the podcast last September, which is when this conversation first aired. The Contemporary Art Museum St. Louis is also exhibiting Dyson's work, paintings from her Bird and Lava series, an exploration of spaces of geographic, architectural, and infrastructural liberation, as part of the exhibition Stories of Resistance, Dyson developed Burden Lava during a residency at the Wexner. Stories of Resistance is on view in St. Louis through August 15th. Turquoise Dyson, after the break. Since Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts founding in 1981, more than 1,500 artists have exhibited at Bemis, performed at its experimental music venue Low End, or participated in its renowned international residency program. In celebration of Bemis Center's 40th birthday this year, they've invited three of the 1,500-plus artists to share their Bemis stories, the role Bemis played within the arc of their careers, and what they're working on today through virtual art talks designed for Bemis members and alumni. On April 6th at 8 p.m. Central, artist Blaine de Saint croix presents the trajectory of his career since his residency at Bemis in 1993 and the research and making of his current exhibition, how to Move a Landscape at Mass MoCA in North Adams, Massachusetts. How to Move a Landscape is De Saint-Croix's largest and most ambitious exhibition to date, exploring the geopolitical landscape and environmental issues. The exhibition features drawings and sculpture alongside commissioned large-scale installations that incorporate new scientific findings about the Earth's dissolving permafrost layer. Help continue Bemis' legacy by becoming a member today and attending this invitation-only event at bemiscenterorg join. Explore an ancient trading center in Return to Palmyra, a new online exhibition from Getty. Discover rare photos and etchings of the city, including famous ruins that no longer exist, and learn how Palmyra has transformed over time. Read an interview with Palmyra's former director of antiquities and museums, Walid Khaled al-Sad, who grew up in this famous Syrian desert oasis, where he can trace his lineage back five generations. Dive into Palmyra's history and culture from the prehistoric to modern period with art historian Joan Aruz. Return to Palmyra is a dual-language exhibition presented in both English and Arabic. Learn more and start exploring at getty.edu slash palmyra. In the book Evicted, Matthew Desmond argues that eviction and homelessness are not only results of poverty, but may also cause it. To contribute to better understanding the close relationship between residential instability and poverty— the exhibition Barriers and Disparities, Housing in America at Sheldon Museum of Art explores selected moments in the history of inequitable access to housing in the United States. Works by Ansel Adams, John Biggers, Gertrude Kasebier, Gordon Parks, Louis B. Sloan, and Paul Strand are featured for their potency in helping us to consider how housing can pose larger questions about systemic injustices in our society. For virtual galleries, learning guides, and information about online events, Visit sheldonartmuseum.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID, Take Six emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take Six has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubenstein Arts Center at the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens and the Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. Resist COVID Take Six allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take Six will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Torquoise Dyson, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here.
0: For most of the last decade or so, you have worked in a mode... That brings history and architecture and geographies and lots of other things to abstraction. I want to start a little earlier than that, back in around 2009 when you were making more explicitly representational work, such as Oil and Fauna Don't Mix, works with with recognizable fauna, (laughs) if you will. So what prompted you or motivated you or informed you as your practice developed to embrace a more abstract language?
1: That work, which we spoke a little bit about earlier at the um, Arlington Arts Center and before at the Corcoran, all of that work was much about war and extraction, the Iraq war at the time. And I was consumed with understanding these sort of systems of extraction that would lead to huge government catastrophes and terrorism and what was all of this violence and technology about as it pertains to environmental, you know, well-being. So the floor and final work came out and the oil work came out of really trying to understand the Iraq war at the time. And before that, having some questions about materiality and globalization and consumerism and trade. So once I had, you know, worked and through those questions, I needed, I think, signs and symbols to understand what was going on in the news and what was going on in the papers and what was going on all around me that seemed so far away. Right. So at that time, representation and even that kind of abstraction within representation was for me to really understand in a palpable way these all of these issues. So I needed images of whales and I needed images of tanks and I needed images of, you know, at the time, like skulls and octopus and, you know, and I needed them to be made out of materials that I recognize in my quotidian life. So all of that sort of was a moment where these histories were being pieced together, these global histories and local histories of war and environment were being pieced together through the work. So it was just a matter of, you know, me dealing with the time, the context, the space the massive and ma- macro understanding of it all and then how it played into my sort of everyday life you know so i needed that relationship to really understand those global conditions and i used representation to get at that
0: your your work still deals with a lot of those issues we'll we'll be talking more about some of them particularly as they relate to the work on view in new orleans did you move away from representation through your drawing practice, which is quite extensive or or through other ways what What kind of got you toward abstraction
1: so what got me to abstraction was actually Hurricane Katrina in that at the time I was teaching at Spelman College, and I was working in that you know vein of representation and material and, you know, really making work. Then started working with like Hummers and that kind of mode of, you know, that kind of time when like Hummers and these big cars were, you know, similar to tanks riding through cities and urban spaces. So when Hurricane Katrina happened, I was, you know, in Atlanta and living there and teaching a spellman, teaching painting. And then next thing I know, I had 20 people at my house, right? I had, my loft was full of friends of mine and people I had, you know, just met come up to Atlanta from New Orleans. And these folks had packed early. They heard the hurricane was coming. And so they kind of locked down their homes and then came up. So a few of my friends came up and then they told other people because the, the space was large to come up as well. And, you know, one day I just sort of looked out as we were, you know, sharing space and getting food and driving around. And a lot of them were musicians. Something else just clicked. And I think it clicked because I had was studying, you know, solar energy was studying all these these other things before and knew that now this is where something, you know, visceral, you know, and and tragic, but also liberating, like the movement had hit me, you know, and what climate migration looks like for black bodies in particular hit me. And so all of these things were now permeating my mind and thoughts and spirit in a way that I started looking into the history of black movement and thinking about the sort of history of, you know, liberation and what does it mean to insist on and fight for your life in both in terror and in opportunity. So when when I dove into the policy around Katrina and the, the underdevelopment and the, the the land grabbing and the horror, which was that aftermath and the representation of it, I just, it it propelled me into questions of geography and atmosphere that then led me to question the history of how Black people got away, you know, what we did to move. And furthermore, how those histories, you know, were very in tune with indigenism and how those histories, you know, we were all interconnected in that way. So the images and the representations and you know the abstractions from representations they were not getting at for me what now i needed to know right what now i needed to be connected with so it became a question of you know cartography it became a question of geography it became a question of mapping it became a question of space right so now that i had some kind of understanding how the history of Western modern industrialization happened, and its sort of war mongering happened, and why that is so connected to extraction, environmentalism and power and capital patriarchy and that now I had a you know now it was like coming into okay, what about resistance, what about liberation what about how do we you know function in these things and what and as I understood those histories, I understood and was inspired by what it took to do these things, like what it takes to move one's body distances, what it takes to understand, you know, to, to not know geographies and still move through them, what it takes for, what it takes for like small acts of liberation on plantation versus large acts of like moving and, you know, leaving and hiding and tucking and Running and walking and whispering, like all of these things, didn't have a representation that I could get at that would allow me the real acknowledgement of perception. You know, is you know, and what it took to overcome chaos by using one's abilities to perceive and move forward in any kind of like organized way. So the paintings became more about, you know, atmosphere and instincts and perception and not the question of looking at something, but a question of what does it mean to look through something, right? So it became this drawing practice that then I embodied in my studio, right? So I started, you know, thinking about Mark differently, line differently, ideas of distance and perception, conceptualization of space, you know, how people use space as, you know, liberatory acts or spaces form, so that I can get at these stories that, you know, talked about air and gravity and weight and density and scale and interiority that taught me something new about those histories, something more intricate about those histories. And, you know, abstraction or what we, we, we call this abstraction, but this mode of making, it teaches me, gets me closer to, it puts me in relationship even more to understanding the power of those kind of abilities of perception and, and and the range of one's capability to self-liberate, you know, in the intimacy of it.
0: Your family has, has a migration story. Your family, I think it was your grandfather, migrated from New Orleans to Chicago. In this period, when you're working through the questions and issues and information you just discussed, Was any of that family history important to you, relevant to you, part of what you worked through?
1: You know, now I understand a person who's sort of diving deep into these conditions is that all of these things are like running these parallel tracks, right? So as I understand what was going on to Katrina, I also knew that I would never be able to get my grandfather's birth records. You know, as I understood what happened to you know, the the land of New Orleans, it, it erased in my mind, in my imagination, what, you know, and why my grandfather and my great grandfather, to some extent, any kind of paper trail I would have of their histories. So my grandfather, so the family story goes, owned a block of houses in New Orleans. And so he was run out of town by the Ku Klux Klan, taking his children to Chicago, where he then bought a I think a 20 unit complex on Champlain, where he then, you know, designed his own house in Chicago and he bought his children homes and and did this because he was a contractor. Right. He understood architecture. And and I'm learning this over the years, but the more I understand it, as I as I'm saying, I'm you know, as I'm expressing to you that I'm working on these parallel tracks. I'm learning that the same time I'm learning about the history of architecture and what it has been and done to the black body and about the history of you know environmental degradation, post technologies of extraction and burning coal. So now I understand that these things are all woven together and those histories, those family histories in particular. My my grandmother was Seminole, who is from Pensacola, Florida, and how did she get to Chicago? And my father's people are from Alabama. How did they then get to Chicago and Maryland, right? So it's, you know, now that I know what questions to ask and moreover, what conditions my ancestors moved through and from, I'm now, you know, acutely aware that this knowing in my own body and knowing in my intellectual space are indelibly tied, right? So all of this is happening simultaneously.
0: In in these years, as you're working through the, the, the issues and histories you just discussed, at the same time, Julie Maritou is making work in which she's also exploring migration and particularly its relationship to form and mark making. Was her work... And, and her way of exploring migration in her own work, both drawing and on canvas, is important to you?
1: I think, of course, it was. You know, I think, of course, it was important. I think what's specifically important to me about Julie Moretz's work is the shifts that she makes on her surfaces, the marks that she makes and her ideas of, like, the frisier, right? What does it mean to, you know, to touch and to have a shape touch another shape. And because of her own geographic history, there's, I think, a sense of scale in her work that she understands. Mm -hmm. And I think from her newest work, where she's, you know, incorporating, I would say a figuration, but also an abstraction, there's something you know intimate going on there. So you know, when I think of Julie Morretu, I also think about someone like a Beverly Buchanan, right, who works in these other kinds of conditions of architecture and migration and movement. So all of the women in, in my mind who have a sense of place and movement are all sort of operating for me as a kind of kin. So. I very much like to think about them thinking about movement and form and touch and scale and, you know, and things of things of that nature. Legia Clark, you know, there's so many women who, I think, think about context and geography, and geographic atmosphere and politic of the body, like... You know, which is different than someone like a Nancy Holt, I think. So, and not just because of, you know, migration, but of, of acu- a, an acute political awareness of geography and its history and place and in, in movement, an index of movement. Sometimes the indexicals that would be there are erased.
0: That brings me to the last five or six years of your practice in which you have taken, I mean, I I think really like all of those ideas we've been talking about and all of those ways of representing place and architecture and migration. And you've built a vocabulary around a series of shapes related to three figures. All three were slaves who liberated themselves by specific acts of migration. And I'll just quickly go through them here. One was Henry Box Brown, who was an enslaved man from Louisa County, Virginia, which is between Richmond and Charlottesville. Who enclosed himself in a crate, and who freed himself by mailing himself to Philadelphia? Uh, Harriet Jacobs, who escaped slavery by hiding in a in an attic-like space with all the kind of claustrophobia and vernacular-ish architecture that that suggests for nearly a decade, and Anthony Burns, who escaped slavery in the hull of a ship that traveled from uh, Richmond to to Boston. The Burns case is famous for umpteen reasons. It's 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 a it's a critical story in America's antebellum history. The other the experience of experiences of Brown and Jacobs are known through their own narratives through which which they themselves authored. What brought your focus? What led you to kind of laser beam in on the physical structures that each inhabited as parts of their i guess metaphorical and actual journeys
1: i knew once i was on a journey to explore black interiority through painting sculpture and drawing i knew i needed a a language an idiosyncratic language to pull from to then create images that then would take me to canvases and and art objects that were themselves liberating to the extent that one would experience a condition through eye and touch and perception, feeling of freedom, of feeling of atmospheric movement, compositions that were both full of tension and space and I knew that to get there, to the phenomenological, to get to something, for lack of a better word, the sublime, to get to something that felt, that would drive me to participate as an artist uh, who makes objects that would then give or try to give a public that feeling, I knew it needed to come from histories of movement and, and Black interiority. So these three histories, because of their varied conditions in making. Box Brown made, right, the architecture. Harriet Jacobs reformed the architecture, right, drilling holes or or making holes and thinking about the body and and different events of, of weather and climate. And then, of course, Anthony Burns going and returning and going and returning. So they all had... For me, the stories had been very much emblematic of self-determination, cooperation. What does it mean to depend and interdepend on spaces that you had to trust people? You know, textures, waters, colors, geometries, you know air, space, time, and most of all, distance, right? So when I figured out that I was going to use the curve, the irregular triangle and the 90 degree angle or the rectangle, I knew that that was enough for me to create a really simple equation that then I would produce out of these phenomenological or try to produce out of them something that was also liberatory to experience. So it was a matter of my goals in relationship to having something that was ontologically tied, you know, or belonged to a liberatory history of perception. And also thinking that I trusted myself if I only had those shapes and if I only had those conditions, if I steeped my... Spirit and thoughts in these histories, I knew that I could push through something else, right? The spirit, the knowledge, the technology, the presence, like all of these things that drove these three individuals that are absolutely representative of a whole nation of people, a whole world of people who self-liberated under different kinds of conditions, but very similar triumphs of interiority. I knew I could take it somewhere, so it was a matter of strategy and understanding that I needed a, a a place to begin, a foundation to begin. And if I move these geometric equations around enough under other conditions, then it would produce something else, right? So you know, it's a way of knowing that from this sort of, I'll call it, equation—the mathematics of abstraction and the abstraction of mathematics—could get me to could get me somewhere, and I could honor them and honor these histories and continue to understand through them other liberatory stories. Right. So, the project at Columbia, uh, 1919 Blackwater, where I focused on Eugene Williams. Well, I don't under—I don't know if I could have understood Eugene Williams' story in the story of those boys in Chicago, if I had not had worked through these shapes like I'd done and committed to, you know, a kind of studio practice that would allow me to or rigorously on page on painting and space, push these shapes through to someplace else. So, you know, it was a, it was a, both a strategy because I, you know, a, a discipline You know, a form of rigor that I could self-impose in my studio and something that I knew that eventually I could build an improvisational practice from. I needed something. And those three stories really allowed me a greater understanding and greater space and really a respected and beautiful foundation than to, you know, work towards the path of the continue struggle like you know <laughs> you know in the struggle <laughs> sincerely in the struggle
0: so those those shapes which refer to brown jacobs and burns have recurred over and over again in your work in whatever medium for a number of years now and i want to raise one particular body of work called strange fruit a series of paintings that recall landscape architectural plans in which each circle on the surface stands for a lynching tree and on the surface of those pictures are embedded. And that's probably not the right word. You know, they're they're adhered to the shapes are adhered to the surface. And those shapes are, you know, indeed the shapes we just discussed, the triangle, the four cornered shape and so on. Is that a good example or is that, am I correct in understanding that as an example of how you have built your symbols and visual vocabulary into abstract history painting into paintings that link slavery to a a later white, a later white violence.
1: So Strange Fruit came after a moment where, of course, it was, you know, it was after oil and fauna and after my work with Studio South Zero and solar energy and understanding, you know, because a period for a period. I stopped painting, right? I stopped painting for years. I don't know, maybe about six years. I'd stop painting. Yeah,
0: let me fill in. Let me fill in just for a second. Studio South Zero is a project you did in Theaster Gates's backyard, <laughs> in half of a Quonset hut, if I'm remembering correctly. And it was multidisciplinary and not related to, not immediately related to anything wall mountable. I mean, that's a that, that's shorthand, but it's filling in a bit. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Studio South Zero had come from another project I was doing, a public art commission, and I was doing, and so it was, it was so much about architecture, so much about space, so much about, you know, autonomy in space. And it was the largest project I, public project I had done, and it was, a, it was a disaster in so many ways. It was such a disaster. Because I, at the time, thought painting was done, like there was nothing about the environmental crisis of Katrina, the environmental crisis of you know global extraction and the, you know boat bodies. there was nothing that painting could do for me in understanding the you know the crisis of climate change or what was happening. so I turned to solar energy, I turned all these architectural things anyway, so it was a, a horrible a horrible context to work in in that project so I was in the asterisk by then had got the candy house and reformed the candy house and this was all before you know the the full expansion of his practice had happened but he was still very much interested in social spaces so I called him throughout this failed project and when it was over I was just kind of devastated but it was fine he said, why don't you come to Chicago and try to make a space for an architectural space about autonomy and an off-grid system. So he did that. I came, you know, we collaborated. He introduced me to some architects. We made it in this back, in his backyard. Other artists came in. Well, in that process, I was determined to learn more about architecture, you know, architectural drawing, architectural rendering, because the project before, failed because I didn't know enough about architecture. Moreover, I did not know how to really understand what I should not have known and understand the scope of this architectural or or the weight of architecture being controlled by white men. I just hadn't really grasped the sort of degradation within that white architectural system. After that, I was determined to learn more about architecture, which then brought me to landscape architecture, which then brought me to a real opening moment to think about lynching, how lynching was represented in landscape. And moreover, how the history of when when I understood architectural drawing, I also understood how to unkeep architecture. Right. So by teaching myself some ideas and, and methods around, you know, drawing about space and everything. I'd experienced historically, slave castles, slave quarters, all of it just came crashing down. And moreover, the history of the way in which lynching was being represented. And so strange fruit came out of that. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute here. You know, it was books and, 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 and literature and photographs on lynching that were all over the place. And I just could not, and I wanted to talk about this as a you know, a spatial terrorism, right? And so I'd really gotten into, you know, Ida B. Wells' Red Book, and I had been thinking about other ways to, you know, think about liberation in space. So Strange Fruit came out of representation, right? So when you you think about architecture and landscape architecture, they have signs and You know, symbols for house, tree, car, door, window, land, bush, you know, all these things. So then I started making the circles to represent the trees. Those are quite literally one-to-one representations of how a landscape architect would, uh, well, not one-to-one, but abstractions of how a landscape architect would signify a tree. And then I just started counting from the red record, thinking about the work of, you know, Ida B Wells and her journey as a woman moving, writing, talking about. You talk about a story of black geography and liberation and movement. That's Ida B. But anyway, so taking those works into something that was on the wall at IBEAM, and I had initially went to IBEAM to do Studio South Zero.
0: The representations of those trees, black and gray circles are layered on top of air quotes your shapes that we were talking about a moment ago so is is that a a conscious intentional layering of histories on top of each other
1: absolutely it was a way to first think about ground and think about atmosphere and think about the physicality of the painting and then on top of those layers, and I would add these, the circles with my hand. So the hand was very much present and moreover, it became a very much monastic practice, right? So one circle, another circle after another circle, that piece at the Studio Museum, I did on wall by hand. And I said, you know, I want to make this, I want to make it on the wall. I don't want to make it in an object I said, I need to, they were generous enough to empty the gallery for me. I couldn't have any, well, I would have preferred not to have anyone around. They granted that. And I just thought about those lynchings and I thought about, you know, before the lynching, right. And I thought about, you know, what does it mean to understand those numbers, but moreover over the, the hands, the bodies, the histories, the movement and to, not, you know, spread them out, you know, these horrible images and how we know them, one body, two body, three body, four body, as if nobody else was around, you know, so I decided to, just like I learned in architecture, remake what those trees were, you know, what what those bodies and those photographs were doing, which like making them seem individual and, you know, making them seem as if They weren't surrounded by each other, you know, that these ancestors who died that way in particular, that it was beyond the photographs, beyond those horrific images and beyond the horrific people who were watching it and and executing these things. That it was more about what does it mean to honor and think about the tree, you know, the land, the soil, the geography, the space. And bring it all together, you know, commune a congregation of sorts out of these. So, you know, painting was a really great way to think out loud about what I was thinking about.
0: Another thing you've done with those foundational historically rooted shapes is you have addressed American minimalism and, and its history. So I'm thinking, for example, of the trapezoidal shiny plastic sculptures, I think they're plastic, that you showed in 2019 in 1919 Blackwater at Columbia, the show we talked about a moment ago, or the Tony Smith recalling forms in your show in 2019 at Pace, or the Tony Smith and, for that matter, Carl Andre recalling shapes in your 2016 Ibeam shows. show, shapes that recall or shapes that are works that reference slave auctions and auction blocks. Were you aware of or were you interested in joining your ideas and your shapes to big male minimalism and its shapes and its forms and its processes? Up- updating might be a better word <laughs> now that I know that. I...
1: No, I'm aware of it because of my MFA. I'm aware of it. And moreover, I studied under Mel Bachner, So I'm really very much aware of it. But I'm also aware, from studying under Mel Bachner, who and Sam Messer, who acutely me, acutely pointed me to my own subjectivity. It wasn't, and at that time, I was very much interested in oceans and and very much thinking about the transatlantic slave trade in different in different language, but the but the aesthetic and the the form and the 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 objects came out of a deep subjectivity. So. I was very much supported because of that, that education and my, you know, just foundational, who I was foundationally in Chicago. It all supported my sort of permission to go in that direction, regardless of who had gone in that direction before. So I was aware that it may rub up against that. So I sort of eventually like dove first into those artists and who I came up with who I wouldn't, you know, who I regard as really an influence in my work is Tony Smith, right? But moreover, how he arrived at his shape and how he talked about exhausting the possibility of architectural spiritualism that wasn't necessarily something that the United States could give him. The way in which he came up with these architectural shapes was because he understood the underdevelopment of of spirituality and architectural freedom in these United States. So what does it mean to push a geometry that way? So in that way, I'm sort of pushing and projecting geometry from these histories that someone could say are in relationship to those, but they don't have really anything to do with those, but that, but for the fact, that we are people who are making art objects. We are thinking about geometry, body, space and real time. But where I've landed with my shape and form is completely without consideration of those men.
0: So that's a good transition to the paintings you have on view now at the New Orleans Museum of Art. The paintings address the Plantationocene, a word used to reference the relationship between plantation agriculture slavery and contemporary capitalism in a lot of these paintings there is a a white line a tapered white line that that runs nearly the entire length of of the paintings so they're 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 not they're, they're tapered lines they're kind of particularly acute isosceles triangles in a way which could connect them to to Harriet Jacobs and her story and your visual vocabulary What is that white line for you? How does it work in those paintings?
1: So what I understand these geometries from my own lived experience, I understand these geometries coming from actually diving in the Atlantic Ocean specifically.
0: We should tell people you are a scuba diver.
1: I am a scuba diver. When
0: you say diving, you mean it literally.
1: I mean, yes. sorry. (laughs) Right. So part of the practice was to learn how to scuba dive and to go see extraction points in the Atlantic, more specifically the Gulf of Mexico, the Gulf Coast. So because that's where my people are from, right up from Florida to New Orleans, moving through those waters is, you know, very important to me. So what that line in the paintings in particular represents a meter, right? So when you're diving and there is a condition of buoyancy, all of these conditions are sort of operating simultaneously. You have a condition of buoyancy, your own body, right? The weight above your body the extraction point meaning the uh, the the pump or the the rig then you have the boat and then you have the ocean and light and then you have the ancestorship right so and the histories of waters as super highways so all of these paintings I have made simultaneously so all of the smaller rectangle pieces in the show I put on a wall and made them at the same time. And so what happened in the studio was that I was losing a sense of direction, right, in the work. And because I was acutely aware of what does it mean to be brought in through the Atlantic from both Virginia, the islands, the southern parts of the United States move through land, and now the cotton industry exhausting the soil, moving west, like all of this movement that originated on water and from water. So I was thinking about something that could allow me to sort of center myself or meter myself in the paintings that then was tied into the sort of lexicon of geometries, right? So this, the triangle that sort of shoots through or projects through the space most time in the center was a sort of infrastructure I'd added to all of the paintings similarly in location and composition that would acknowledge both ideas of distance and place and settle me as I'm making all of these paintings simultaneously. They act as an anchor. They act as a, a sort of compositional reality that sort of bisects almost the center, but off-center, keeps me aware of the symmetry and keeping me aware that oftentimes uh, composition with a shape language can land in the didactic, right, in a really, I think, positive way in that it gives you immediate information. But then when you have this sort of didactic condition capable of revealing itself in geometric abstraction, How do you then push against that to something atmospheric? So I'm aware of those tensions between the hard and the soft, the didactic and the poetic, the sort of mark making and fluidity of the paint next to something that is, you know, sort of diametrically opposed to that in the same picture plane.
0: Well, speaking of the picture plane, they recall pipelines, a pipeline receding into the distance as if it was slammed up into the picture plane.
1: Absolutely. So the pipelines are moving throughout all of the paintings. And the, I'll say this, the word I'm looking for is rectilinear. Okay. So like pipelines, when you understand them as <laughs> multi-directional, as a network of systems, you know, in our oceans that along with oil also runs all sorts of materials of technology that they are operating um, now violently. So as a different kind of false or I'll I'll call it an invasion into (laughs) the body of the earth. And so these this sort of virus now, um, this human-produced virus of pipelines that are you know, constantly running through the earth to provide all kinds of different services. In the paintings, I needed them to not be central but to oscillate. The geometry projected into the space in the terms of the rectilinear needed to, you know, oscillate in a still picture plane. So what does it mean to use scale and different kinds of geometries and different kinds of perspective tools to create an illusion of, you know, oscillation, while there's also something that is, you know, grounded and not oscillating at all, right? So you have the water that's never in the same place, you know, twice. You have the the pipelines that are indetectable, right? They're indetectable, that they're, they're opaque. We don't know how many, where, where they, I mean, this kind of, you know, this secret violence of pipelines along the, uh, around the world and extraction. Some are known, some are not known. But then you have what what you can very well see as a sort of tourist of the ocean now, large extraction points where you have the, the oil tank, the rig, the pump that are all all littering the ocean so those perspective moves are about for me giving a sense of movement of different paces that you experience as a diver.
0: I want to transition to a body of work you're working on now called Bird and Lava and I want to do that by pointing to you know before we get into some of the specifics of, of the bird and lava work. One, one element that recurs in, in quite a lot of your work, including 15 paintings for the plantation Ocene, a word I seem to be having a hard time pronouncing, <laughs> and the bird and lava work, is that you often play shiny surfaces off of matte surfaces, whether that's sculpture or on paintings. Why
1: is that a thing for you? Reflective light and the way in which surfaces can absorb light. In not only, you know, in the history of you know painting has it formally achieved a condition of depth in the paintings, and for me it also represents a kind of geography and geology that's inherent in the work, water as geography, you know, oil as liquid from the earth that has a shiny surface these sort of matte conditions of soil and earth and ground. And all of it has a condition of state change, right? So something goes, something that's wet, like what I use in the work a liquid graphite can very much look like oil in the beginning, but through a condition of state change, it can go to very matte, right? So reflective surfaces in relationship to the matte surfaces is deployed to really, you know, exacerbate conditions of being in closeness and distance and motion and and that things constantly change. And so with the reflective surfaces, of course, what they do is they reflect, right, the atmosphere around them. So a lot of the work reflects the light of the room it reflects the the body of the viewer standing in front of it and the the matte surface really pulls the viewer in to see what is absorbing all of that light what is creating that void which is also you know a glissant political term that we belong to the void the void is what we have in common so all of these things i'm acutely aware of when you know making the paintings that are You know, asking the audience to, you know, really experience the planet, the earth, the materials from the plastic to the graphite to the soil and their capabilities and thinking about depending on the site, especially in bird and lava, thinking about, you know, an amalgamation of what does it mean to have a surface that reflects maybe even a shadow or index of the viewer, but also Lots of water, you know, and the conundrum of the color of water, right? Which has no color, right? Water does not inherently have a color. So, when you're looking out into the ocean and you're looking into liquid and you're looking into light that is appears black or blue, you know, those things are the appearance of something, but not it in of itself, right? So. With Bird and Lava, it was very much about, you know, this new shape that I'd come up with, the, the, the trapezoid and the, the circle.
0: Let me, yeah, let me quickly describe it. It's a circle, and then from the bottom of the circle, a kind of trapezoidal shape extends down through the thing, whether it's two-dimensional or three-dimensional.
1: This is my, this is a shape that I've landed on. This is the shape that I feel like I've wor- been working my whole career to get to, wh- which I call before hypershape. So the, the amalgamation of Burns and Box and Harriet, those were uh, what I called hypershapes. Composing the hypershapes over and over and working them through and pushing them through this lexicon, this equation, which I call hypershapes, landed me at this shape. Because what it does it's an amalgamation of all of these shapes, all of these geometries that landed me in a landed me in a place of pure you know emptiness if I can say this of, a, a, a sort of moment of clarity, a moment of um, where I was making I found a container that I would say these sort of history of ancestral liberation brought me to, right? So trapezoid and the circle from everything that I've been reading and looking at and learning, I was, I was able in my mind to invent a shape and I'm I'm doing a lot of looking that, that I hadn't seen before in the Canon, but that was coming from my own rigor in the studio to get to, but that, that was informed by these, histories and histories of the likes
0: Speci- specifically histories of black liberation.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely So this the surfaces with the show with this last this next project at pace those surfaces I was able to spend time on that particular shape and really get to the surface quality, get to the tonality, get to the sort of oscillation of light line and images like I'd never done before. So instead of tossing these shapes around and moving them around to get something that expressed an experience, now with this particular shape, the hyper shapes have landed, for now anyway, in a moment where all of those things all of the things I'm thinking, all of the things I'm feeling, all of the knowledge and emotion that goes into this 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 one shape can host all of that before I was using these shapes as a way to express something, and the 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 canvas was the thing that hosted that expression, but now I have a shape that itself is autonomous, and in it, I can host those expressions. Right, so whether it's a drawing, whether it's a sculpture, whether it's a painting, the the geometry of the trapezoid and the circle then become a place to host this information. So the surfaces become the areas that are, you know, composed in these different sort of sections hold different kinds of information. So, so
0: as you kind of referenced right there, this is a shape you are using in paintings in drawings, so in, in two-dimensional works, in, in sculpture, in three-dimensional works. This show is, you're still making this work and, and, and it's scheduled to be shown in 2021 at the Wexner. So of course things can change as we've certainly learned <laughs> in the last six months. And then you've also been playing around in the studio with three-dimensional modeling and animation. Why is migrating that shape into all of those different media and dimensions, if you will, core of the project
1: I'm finally you know being myself right it's just something that I don't know if I can explain it it's something that I feel like it's something that I made right it's the thing that doesn't necessarily in its existence have in its embodiment have a direct reference to something else it's because of those things right it, it exists because of those things but I can't necessarily point to this form and say that that form is something else, right? I can say that that form is a moment of pure perception for me. So with the animations and the drawings and the stop animations in particular, I can say that in the language of invention, if that's even possible now with the history of art making, I have created a a geometric condition, an equation that I think really, and expresses my work to get through the hyper shape.
0: Because because you can migrate it into all of these forms in medium, you, you might as well to use a particularly male term spread out.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I guess so. It's uh, I think the, the 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 forms allow me to test myself, right? So if this shape, the trapezoid and the circle, if this composition is something that I've produced out of the hyper shapes and it lands at something that may be didactic, may be symbolic, may be still right. If I've landed on this is the shape, this is the form, what does it mean to then test it? What does it mean to put it up against something liquid? What does it mean to put it up against something iron? What does it mean to put it up against something transparent? What does it mean to put it up against something flat or you know the curvilinear or rectilinear? composition, what does it mean to really force it to host the haptic? What does it mean to host the questions of the industrial? What does it mean to host the questions of improvisation and movement? So this form that has come out of my work with the hyper shape is really important in Bird and Lava, because if I've landed on something that I think is an essential part of all of my research, then I need to test it further. I need to push it further. I need to toss it around, right? And so I've moved from tossing those three shapes, the rectangle, the triangle, and the curve, from tossing it around to now tossing this particular amalgamation of all of those practices around. And I can do it through material now that I'm situated, I've situated myself. So I think it's the most monastic moment in the practice.
0: I love that. That's great. Torquase Dyson, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.